welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. All electronic devices, if you need to use yours during this meeting, please take it outside. We ask that you not make any personal recording of this or any meeting. Please join me in a moment of silence, followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. In the spirit of carrying the essay message, this meeting is being broadcasted live, and this meeting is also being recorded. If you are not sure your share will be appropriate or on topic, please participate by listening. The broadcast and recording equipment will not be turned off for any reason. If you wish to share, please speak directly into the microphone so the listener can follow you. If you wish not to be recorded, We invite you to participate by listening or attending another session. Please do not touch any of the recording equipment. Um, Do you want to go first? Again, my name is Dwayne, the sexaholic. Um, My sobriety date is uh, New Year's Eve, 2010. Uh, I um, have been in uh, part of the SA Fellowship uh, since summer of 2004, and um, the trauma, uh, in my experience, uh, my trauma is uh, self-induced. I like to think it's due to outward circumstances, but it's really... um, of my own doing. Um, My fear of rejection is what uh, induces my my trauma. Um, My wife and I were uh, cross-cultural vocational religious workers outside the U.S. for about uh, 25 years. And... uh, about, uh, well, I was asked to resign uh, from uh, my position uh, due to my acting, acting on my disease. Um, it was in the, the April of 2003. Um, I jettisoned uh, 
my adult supervision uh, to go check out um, one of my former uh, young lady friends. And uh, that led to a series of discussions by my uh, supervisors, which a few weeks later culminated in a request for, for my resignation. Uh, my my identity um, is totally tied up in what I do. Uh, in my current work, uh, about three years ago or so, uh, I was uh, told that I would need to reduce my days from five days to four. And... Uh, that was a threat to me. Uh, it was, I feared, my, my perception was that I was, that, that I was, that my value in my supervisor's eyes had diminished by 20%. And uh, part of that false evidence appearing real. And uh, it's, I was, It was paralyzing. Uh, I, I felt inferior, uh, and a few, uh, earlier this earlier last year, uh, I also had to cut my hours a little bit, and the feeling wasn't as strong, uh, but it was still present. That feeling of of being less, and uh, going back to. Uh, the request for my resignation. Um, that set off a, um, a several months, uh, maybe up to a year or so, of pretty deep depression uh, because who I was was totally tied up in what I did. Uh, I was a... Uh, I was valued, esteemed by others, uh, saw as very significant, and when that was pulled out from under me, uh, I had no, I I was wandering, I had no, felt like I had no foundation, no underpinnings, and uh, to the point of, uh, after after we returned to the States, I wondered if those 25 years ever ever really happened. Uh, uh, inertia set in. Uh, I had no direction. Uh, I had to re-engineer uh, some kind of career because I was, wasn't at retirement age yet, and I had no clue. And um, my wife has never. We've never been separated, uh, but during that those months after our returning here, um, she told me she needed to take two weeks off, and she left for some time in another state. Um, bless her, God bless her. She's she's been a trooper that stayed with me through all my crap, and uh, especially through that time where I was a non-contributor to the to the to our 
to our household. And she was carrying the burden pretty much exclusively. Uh, I was in the I was in SA. I'd been in SA for three or four years. Uh, during that time, during that time of depression, I gave up my four years of sobriety. Um, stumbled uh, for another three years and chronic relapsing. Uh, went to meetings, worked the steps, met with my sponsor, began sponsoring others during that time. But it was a lot about taking the act, do. do doing what I was told to do, but not feeling. And uh, about two years later, uh, I was able to do my step nine amends with those who had asked for my resignation. It took that long because those resentments were very deep. And uh, ten years later, those people who were my best friends before, um, who asked for my resignation, are still my best friends, and I can look at them now and not think about what took place. And uh, but it took a long time. It took a long time to disassociate with what I felt they had done to me, and uh, to see them as once again as. Full, full, fully fledged friends without associating with with the past. Um, and again, my trauma is self-induced. If my if I hadn't had fear of rejection, if my identity was tied up in who I am, not tied with what I do, I would have moved on much much easier. I, I'm sure, but. Uh, it wasn't their request for my resignation that was a problem. It was what I had done and my my fear and my resentments that that produced the trauma. So uh, the 12 steps, um, working them, participating in recovery was the solution. Uh, it, it took a while for me to feel feel that. Um, but, but I had to take the steps and let the feelings come later. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. <coughs> I'm David. I'm a sexaholic. Hey, Dave. My sobriety date's August 2nd, 1988, for which I can never be sufficiently grateful. Um, this will be a question and answer uh, session after we each share um, in consulting with the people doing the streaming, we decided if you have a question, we'd love to have it. We would like you to write it on. There's two pads of paper on this table right here in front. If you would write it down and and um, and get the question up to us, uh, they will also be getting some questions possibly over the internet, and and we'll respond to those. Um, so, if you think you have a question while I'm talking, I'll, I'll share about trauma and twelve steps in just a second, but. If you have a question and want to come up and write it, that's fine. Moving around while I'm talking would be just great. Um, and then we'll deal with that and, until we end at a little before 11.20. Um, I, w- I wanted to volunteer for this topic for several reasons. It's, it's been so um, personally important to me. 
Um, and I, but I think I'll start in another area of my life altogether. Um, I worked in a treatment center for a while, and part of our program, our recovery program, was to have, uh, we had same-sex groups, so I, I was chair, uh, facilitating a men's group, and we had a curriculum, and we had two sessions on on um, sexuality. And these were all the people, in order to be in the group, they had to be convicted felons with a, a cocaine possession charge or drug possession charge. It tended to be mostly cocaine, some meth. And um, so they all had had tremendous consequences uh, just in order to be a part of our group. And in the human sexuality uh, sessions, another counselor and I had a little quiz that we were running, and my only regret over all these sessions is I didn't actually write down the results after each time we did it. We did it for a couple of years. And we would ask these men, um, when did you start being sexually active? And they almost all had begun sexual activity um, between ages 8 and 12, with a female that was in their life. Um, babysitters were the most common. Um, female teenagers who were in the neighborhood were common. Uh, occasionally it was an aunt or a cousin, female cousin. Uh, and, and those are the ones we heard about. Um, what we did not hear about was sexual activity with other men, that wasn't going to happen in the kind of groups we ran, even though we know it happens. And we also didn't hear about sexual activity with a, a, a closer relative than that. And then it was fine. We weren't out to dredge up stuff like that. But what was so stunning was, these were all convicted felons, what was so stunning was it was never less than 50% and was almost always 80% of the group had... Uh, started sexual activity that early. And it was just a reminder. This had nothing to do with sexual addiction in and of itself. But it was a reminder how devastating. If they had been females, by the way, they all would have been sexually abused and they would have identified that way. But because they were males, they just scored early. They were lucky. They had, you know, were just grateful or whatever. I mean... It was just a reminder that this issue of trauma and sexual acting out is, and the consequences on the rest of our lives is, is very significant and, and continues. And I've seen this verified in other formats since then. But there are two particular traumas that I identify with strongly. And none of these were obvious to me when I came into this program. Um, one was that it took me quite a while to realize, and it was the help of a counselor who helped me with this, um, that I had, I, I knew I had checked out in terms of fantasy and stuff when I was very young, four years old on, I can track it, it may have started sooner. And I knew that, um, that the fantasies were all-consuming. And many of them, they weren't necessarily sexual at age four or five, although some of them were. Um, and uh, I didn't know what sexual was. I just knew I was really fascinated by females. And, um, and, and actually, I was fascinated by males. I was fascinated by my erections and whatever. So 
Um, but it took me a while, a counselor saying things, and then another counselor I worked with this on, to realize that in my family there was a lot of tension. There was real battles between my mother and dad, mostly over my dad's occupation, his his professional work. He was very successful at what he did. It just demanded that he be away a lot. He wasn't far. He was he was a, he was a scientist, and he was in his laboratory. Uh, what he wasn't was home, and there were five of us young boys, um, and my mom was just had a tough job raising all of us, and and often he was gone. When he was there, he was very much there. He was a very involved father, but and he was gone a lot, and so there would be these real battles. The other thing that was a battle it turned out neither of my parents were alcoholics, but I remember I was um, I'd been out of the household. I'd gone to college and. I came home and was talking to my father once, and and he said, you know, David, we've they love gin and tonics. He said, we've given up gin and tonics. And I said, how come? He said, because we discovered every time we drank gin, we fought. So we stopped, and it was probably the juniper berries that did it. But he said, so we gave up gin, and we haven't fought since. And whether that was the total cause or not, I don't know. But what I do know is, they were drinking a lot of gin and tonics when I was young, and they fought. And so one of the traumas for me was the family tension and the, and the anxiety. And what came to me quite a while later and quite a while into sobriety is that, and I was just sharing this at a previous meeting, all of us have this fear of abandonment. And the fear of abandonment kicks in when we're 10 minutes old. Maybe it's 9 minutes, maybe it's 11. I'm <laughs> right after birth when we, at a physiological level, figure out, if I'm not taken care of, if I'm abandoned, I'm out of here, I'm dead. And that core fear never leaves us, never leaves me anyway. And anything that triggers off that fear of abandonment goes right back to those first 10 minutes of life on up. So right now it's 72-some years ago. And... And when my parents were fighting, it triggered, this is all much later in program, it triggered my fear of abandonment stuff, and I was devastated. So I did one of the things that was open to me. I went off into fantasy land, into la-la land, which then once I discovered masturbation was la-la land in sexual arousal and orgasm, and, and it's never stopped until I came in this program. That traumatic fear of abandonment is... I, I bump into, we bump into it all the time. I do anyway. If somebody rejects me, if somebody humiliates me or laughs at me, one of the worst fears of abandonment for me is if someone tells me I've, I'm lying. I just get bizarre on the inside. You know, it's one of my character defects. I get really defensive and, you know, and I know it's all my fear of abandonment stuff now. I, I didn't know that for a long time. And so, <coughs> That, that living with trauma and recognizing how it's impacted my life has been an important part of sobriety and recovery for me, and for which I'm very grateful. Another trauma that I experienced, um, and and it's it's a good example for me anyway of how individual these traumas can be. That one, the fear of abandonment is generic. All of us have it. Seven billion people, in my experience. Um, the the other one, though, I was um, staying at my brother's house in 1991, 
for my daughter's graduation from college. And we were, my mother and I and my brother were in the same house, and my mom and I were getting ready to go to the graduation. I suppose my brother was too. And, and I was sitting in the living room just reading a book or talking, I don't remember which, of his apartment. And my mother came in the room and started undressing in front of me. And what she was doing was just putting on clothes to go to the graduation. What was happening, though, she was undressing in front of me, and it just slammed me. And and I realized immediately what it was. And I ran to the kitchen where my brother had a phone and was able to call my sponsor, and Harvey answered. And I said, Harvey, I figured out why I'm so focused on women's body parts. My mother practiced sexual, I mean, uh, nudity in the household, social nudity. That's what I was looking for the phrase. <laughs> and and it was tr- it, it affected me. It's just I lived in an all male household except for my mom, and it just hit me really hard that I had never I had no idea what it was. I just knew that I couldn't not look at female body parts. Uh, I couldn't. Con- that was part of my disease, and and. Um, and that was it. There was social nudity in our house. It was normative. For most people, it's probably not a problem. And for me, it was it was devastating because it, it, it sort of burned a hole in my psyche that I struggle with to this very moment. Um, like any of my character defects, they don't run my life today. That doesn't run my life today. And, and I really am in a very different place today and how that affects me than it used to. But uh, that moment is really uh, vivid for me. Even telling the story, it's like I'm back there. And um, and I was always very grateful to her and to the God taking this time. At that point, it's a little over three years sober. And, um, and taking the time to show me what it was that had been affecting me so strongly um, for so many years and, and does to this day. So I take trauma very seriously. Um, the nice thing about um, trauma and 12-step recovery is it's totally part of the package. Um, we um, all will have events that trigger that fear of abandonment or that distorted us, the twists of character, as Bill Wilson writes in the big book. And um, that's not the problem. That's just something that happens. We all have these powerful things. Physiologically, uh, a traumatic event will, in fact, produce a different set of neurons in our heads, and they 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 look different physically. They can be tracked, and they will affect us differently over time. Um, again, that's not a problem. It's just something that happens. Traumatic things happen in people's lives. Um, they may be losses. It may be humiliation. Humiliation is one of the most traumatic things that happens. It turns out my higher power, God, as I understand him, uh, thinks humiliation is a lot of fun. And God just goes out of his way to find ways to humiliate David because he knows that I will learn from it. And he knows that if I'm humiliated, I probably won't keep doing it. Sometimes I'm a little slow, but I go that direction. So trauma is not inherently a bad thing. It's just something that is. 12-step recovery is totally focused, first of all, on our relationship with a higher power, in my experience, God, and and 
to use that relationship to accept myself as I actually am rather than as I fantasize I am or fantasize I want to be. That the fantasizing part began, as I said, at least by age four and probably earlier, and, and it's just in me. Accepting myself as my am, as I am, has definitely been as a sexaholic, as someone who's, you know, needs a lot of humiliation to do a good job, whatever it is. Um, accepting my, focusing on who I am today is what 12-step recovery gives me uh, all the time. And, and then I can grow with it or I can ignore it or whatever and work the steps on it. And then, the 12 steps also walks us through the whole process of, of really what people who treat trauma do, which is to be honest about it, admitted, we're entirely ready, I mean, um, came to believe, uh, we're entirely, we turned our will on our lives, made a decision, excuse me, I'm trying to go through the steps here, <coughs> to get started, uh, to do an inventory and share it with somebody. Uh, to be honest about how it's affected us over time, that I'm permanently distorted in certain areas of my life, that's not a problem if I admit it, if I accept it. That's six and seven. And then clean up any messes that that are can be cleaned up without harming another person, eight and nine. And then keep doing that cleaning process and, and being a part of the larger world process that 10, 11, 12 ask us to do. Those basic processes are used in treating trauma in any other sort of area, psychological area in our lives, and they're part in the core, the very core of 12-step recovery. Do we label it as trauma? Eh, maybe we do, maybe we don't. Um, that's more of a therapy word, and many of us avoid those words in 12-step recovery. But the basic concept, in my experience, is, is there. I think that's enough to share. I know we have some questions because I've seen people walking up. If you have something that you want to ask, please do, and we'll just deal with these. And are there any coming in? Yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to just take them? Okay. This question, um, Dwayne Sectaholic, um reads, hmm. While I do agree that many of the traumas I experienced as an adult are self-inflicted, my story is that I experienced a great amount of trauma as a child that was inflicted upon me. Can you share how you have used the steps to deal with trauma that you experienced as a child? Are there particular steps that bring that you bring to bear and work when you are facing a childhood trauma. You want to comment on that? You want to say anything? Um, maybe I'll follow up. Um, well, actually, I was reading the other questions, so it wasn't listening. Oh, Why don't you respond okay. a little bit, and then yeah. let me respond to that. Um, yeah, I, I didn't mean to imply that all trauma is uh, self-induced. Uh, for me, my trauma was playing the victim role in a huge way, and that's what allowed those things to set in, those feelings of resentment and so forth. Um, you know, David talked about uh, something he saw from his, his mother do that that it was not self-inflicted. It, it was, he was just in, in the wrong place at the wrong time, so to speak. 
Um, yeah, so there, there is trauma that is not uh, self-inflicted. Self um, to me, the solution is the same. Uh, in the twelve, in the twelve steps of of admitting uh, my powerlessness, um, believing that my higher power can restore me to sanity, um, going through the step four of of uh, the cause of my resentment or fear, um, and getting to, and getting to my part. Um, um, I don't identify with that. I'm sure there was some childhood trauma that I experienced, um, especially with my with my father. Um, I'll just I'll just share um, today uh, Saturday Thursday. I uh, received a, a letter from uh, the daughter of. Um, of a good friend of mine, he was kind of a surrogate father to me when I was uh, single and and away from home. He and his wife took me in um, uh, on Sundays after church when I was in that area, and I got a letter from the daughter that uh, my Christmas card to him was uh, uh, been forwarded to her because her father had passed away. Uh, last March, and I, I didn't know, and that sent me into a um, a season of crying, weeping, um, and my wife helped me see that uh, Leo, the guy's name, was provided some fathering to me that I had did not see in my in my own father. And uh, that was the reason I was feeling the loss. And uh, so maybe I'm still in the process of learning um, of some trauma that was inflicted upon me in my childhood by my father. Um, so I'll pass that on to David. Why don't you read that one while I talk you? Um, I, I think what Dwayne said made sense. I think I'll just, unless I come back to it for some reason, I'll just read the next question. My experience is that trauma therapy before SA recovery never worked. After I worked the 12 steps in SA and still suffered from trauma, I again followed therapy and it worked. When is it okay to suggest a sponsee go check out a therapist? Is that after he finishes the 12 steps sober? Um, I, I really appreciate the, the question, and, and I really um, it gets to a whole bunch of things. There are um, one of the there are many many things about spiritual recovery, which is what SA is, and we're based on AA set of principles, spiritual in nature, which is practiced as a way of life, expel the obsession, and and um, the nice thing about spiritual recovery is that it's available twenty four seven. Um, and by definition, and also 365, except every four years when it's 366. And and spiritual recovery is just different. I told a guy the other day, he's, he, he tries to act out at, at 2.30 in the morning. I said, well, why don't you call me? Well, it's 
I said, I, you're, I'm, I'm, you're not in charge of phone calls getting through, neither am I. God's in charge of that. Just call me. Because that's the whole nature of this program is we're, you know, God and, and our sponsors and our people in the program, it's 24-7, 365, you know, it's, that's the deal. And that's partly because that's what it takes for me to rework that part of my brain that is the seat of my sexual compulsiveness and my sexual addiction. So spiritual recovery definitely has a different impact than therapy. On the other hand, they're both useful. Bill Wilson makes this point over and over again, that we, we trust professionals. God has created medicine and psychologists as much as he's created sexaholics. You know, we need all of them. And so to use therapy when it's appropriate, to use when it's helpful, trauma therapy, uh, there's a woman named Lisa Najevitz who just has an approach to trauma that really makes sense to me, and it's been incredibly helpful over the years. Um, so it's always appropriate to use things that are part of this world of which we're a part, part of God's creation, if you will, um, to help us get better. Um, does the sequence matter? Well, this is my bias, um, and I, it is my bias. I, I know I'm not alone in this. I also know a lot of people disagree. But I find for addictions, in my experience, spiritual recovery really works. And the mental, the mental health approach, the insight-directed approach, however behaviorist it might be, just doesn't work as well, if at all, for addictions. Now, that's a pretty heavy-duty statement, I'm well aware. Nonetheless, um, it is my experience. And I think it's basically what AA bumped into. Uh, I went to a conference a number of years ago where the refrain from highly educated, highly uh, active scientists in the field of addiction and recovery kept repeating the same phrase the entire workshop. AA got it right in the first place. Um, not because they knew the science and the physiology behind it, but because they discovered what worked. And, and that's my experience. Having said that, though, first of all, most people aren't addicts. Sexual addiction maybe affects 1 or 2% of the population. Amen! I wouldn't wish this disease on anybody. So I certainly wouldn't wish it on the other 98% or whatever. And so it doesn't mean we don't grab the headlines. Try to pick up a daily paper without finding one of us in the headline. It's, it's a challenge, unless it's a community paper, maybe not that. Um, and then secondly, um, always being willing to work with therapists. But if, for sobriety, I find I have to use spiritual recovery. And I know I'm just just sort of preaching on that. So that's my experience. Did you want to respond to that all or just go on to the next? Okay. This question reads, what can SA do for me, a sexaholic, when I am the one inflicting the trauma? Context. In addition to being an SA, I am also an emotionally abusive husband. I am unclear whether working my SA program will address the emotional, emotional abusiveness or if I need to be in a separate program to address that. My friends and family certainly see them as two separate things. And we have no particular opinion on other um, outside help like counseling, therapy, and so forth, other than to say that it can be it can be helpful. Um, 
so that it could be that um, in addition to working in the SA program that one seeks uh, therapy and counseling. Um, for me, uh, the big book talks about uh, working the 12 steps will will solve all our all our problems. Um, I would think that uh, for the emotionally abusive spouse, um, keeping close to one sponsor, talking about that, uh, being honest. Uh, Working the step four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, and so forth would help address um, the 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 abusive behavior. And uh, if it's like me with as a rageaholic, uh, over a period of about fifteen years, my uh, anger slowly, slowly dissipated. Mm-hmm. And so it could be a long process of, of work of NSA getting help from from the rec- in recovery, um, but uh, we it could well be that uh, supplemental help by counseling and therapy would also be helpful. I, that's all I can say on that. Well, I'll respond to that in one of the earlier questions because they overlap. Um, my experience is, first of all, I really like what you said. Secondly, my experience is that all of us, and I, I mean all literally, not just in our program, but people, are always doing the best they can do at that moment. And what spiritual recovery gives me an opportunity to accept is that at any given moment, I was doing the best I can do. Sometimes the best I can do is to be really cruel or to do something that really harms somebody else or to do something that leaves people thinking that they have a problem and not me or to lie to somebody like my wife or, I mean, any number of things that the best I could do at that moment was to do those things. What 12-step recovery gives me is an opportunity to say, yep, that's what I did. That's step one. And that was the best I could do at the time. That's the beginning of step two. And I don't have to keep doing that today. That's step two and moving on to step three. And, And given that I have a history of doing those things, I better look at them all step four and five, and then be willing to let them go, six and seven and so on. And, of course, we clean up our messes, eight, nine, and ten. And 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 I love it when uh, Harvey's wife, Nancy, in all of her four foot, nine inches, or whatever height she is, draws herself up to her seven foot, five inch height and says, the step says, when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. It's not if we're wrong or on those rare occasions are wrong. We will be wrong. It's admitting it. That's the prompt that we do. And it turns out promptly admitting it promptly turns out to be a highly variable concept. You know, it used to be decades, then it's years, then it's months, then it's weeks, then it's days, then it's hours. I mean, that's how it goes. So that there's trauma in our lives. There are people all over the world experiencing massive amounts of trauma. 
There are people all over the world who uh, are uh, coping with that trauma's effect on their lives. And there are people all over the world who, who live with that, and they do cope with it in different ways. And, and we're no different. We're just a part of the big group, only we had to have a specialty in certain areas of our lives uh, in terms of sexual addiction and arousal and all that stuff. And to just accept that that's the way I am is what, and then clean up the messes has been what 12-step recovery. Let me, we're going to run out of time, so let me move on. A question from online. Appreciate uh, someone writing to us. Do we have another one coming? Okay. Uh, can you talk about the trauma sexaholism leaves on an individual and those around them? How do we deal with that? And I kind of just mentioned it, and Dwayne may have some comments too. Um, um, we are we we have we we qualified by getting here by doing damage to ourselves and others to others and ourselves whichever sequence and the steps are very much geared to that um, one of my quips and I've said it before and I'll say it again we have very low standards for admission to this program and we have to meet them uh, to qualify and so that means we've done some things that are traumatic to other people that's what harm is. Uh, did I harm all the people I thought I had harmed? No. When I made my eight-step list that had 54 names on it, I ended up with seven or eight that I had to make amends to. Uh, that's pretty normal in terms of, because a lot of my, uh, I may have, I may have been, as my sponsor said, David, you were a jerk. You didn't harm them. That was hard to accept, by the way. That was actually, I'd rather have harmed them than have just been a jerk. And and then clean up the messes. So we we definitely you know we know we've done damage. We have to accept that's who I am. And if I accept that, I then have the freedom to. And by the way, one reason I'm a big fan of we're always doing the best we can can do at the time. Then I have room to grow. If I tell myself I could have been different than the way I was, I have nowhere to go. I'm stuck. I'm in a loop. And so we clean up messes. And twelve step recovery is totally dealed with. Uh, being taking responsibility for and cleaning up the messes we've made. As Dwayne said a minute ago, though, sometimes over a long period of time, 15 years is nothing unusual. Uh, being patient, letting God work it out. you want to respond to that? One here, online question. Yeah, this online question about uh, the trauma sexaholism leaves on an individual. Um, my short answer to that is uh, some of us are double winners, uh, we're both in sex, SA, and, but also in SNI. Um, SNI is the program for, for those who have been affected by sexaholics or sexaholism. Um, so that's a, a possible um, suggestion for those who suffer the trauma of sexaholism brought on by others. Any other questions out there that that are written? Um, okay. Give a last well, comment. are there any burning desires? Because if you shout it out, we can repeat it. Is anybody going to leave here really frustrated that you didn't get something responded to? Okay. Is the question, it sounded like you were saying, how does one not live in the future, tra future trauma? Things that could go wrong in the future? Yeah, 
So here's, here's what I do with that personally, and Dwayne may have his own response, and we'll wind up with this. Um, living in the wreckage of the future is really common. Uh, we clean up the wreckage of the past, yeah. <laughs> Being tempted to live in the wreckage of the future. And what I have to do is, 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 is the same thing as thinking through the, the drink, thinking through the first drink. Living in the records of the future for me is saying that I know the future. I say that out loud. It's like, well, wait a minute, David. And even more importantly, it's saying I not only know the future, I, and I'm fantasizing about the future, and, and, and it's terrible. And then it reminds me of the one time my sponsor actually flat out lied to me. He said, David, if you start thinking about something, it'll be negative within two minutes. He lied. It's never taken anywhere close to two minutes. It's always been in the first 30 seconds. I'll get into, you know, it's a beautiful day outside, but it's going to rain tonight. That's where my brain goes. So, so to know that when I start fantasizing, and then the last thing is to realize that when I'm thinking about something that's not happening right this moment, I'm obsessing. And Maynard's law of obsession kicks in at that point. I only obsess about things I can do nothing about. And that saved me a lot of grief. The other shoe dropping. Um, fear of the worst. Um, and just to re remind myself that all I have is today. And to do the best I can today with my higher powers help. Um, so, in closing, heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual. SA are found in our twelve steps and twelve traditions. Remember that we never identify ourselves publicly in the press, radio, TV, or films. Please keep the name, address, and phone number of anyone you meet or learn about in SA to yourself. The shares we have heard were told in confidence. Please do not repeat what you have heard about another member to anyone who is not actually here at this meeting at the time that it was shared. Please, what we say here, when we leave here, let it stay here. Here, here. here, here. Let us close. Uh, maybe we can circle up and do the third step prayer. And while you're making, go ahead and make the circle, and I'll join you in one second. Uh, we were asked to make this announcement. Um, uh, Harvey is speaking across the way, literally across the way, in La Jolla room. And he will be speaking until 12 o'clock, and you're welcome to just, if you want to go hear him. Uh, just go across the hall to La Jolla and go in and join him. There's a specific invitation to do that. We were scheduled to end at 11.20, and, and we are doing that. And let's close with whatever prayer Dwayne chooses, um, and we'll wind up this session. Thank you all for coming. It's been a privilege to be here.
send everybody back to the lobby. Okay. But they know what's the next session. Well, they come in, they'll see that. Right. Once they're on a the phone, they're on a the phone. Yeah, they'll see the image. Should we're watching the phone, you don't care. For some reason, the image is not the exact size that they request. Um, Everything is the No, I know, Mike, there's a bubble glitch. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.